Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Dr. Robbie Watts. Robbie is a lecturer at the University of Manchester. He teaches a range of classes, including the politics of climate change. And he joined me to discuss ideology, subjectivity, um, and how essentially the paradigm that we live in affects our ability to grasp the reality of the situation, uh, grasp the reality of power dynamics, uh, grasp the reality of capitalism even, and what to do about it. We dip our toes in psychoanalytical theory <laughs> in order to best understand this. And in particular, Robbie makes some fascinating comments about how to repoliticize spaces and debates in order to frame the problems that we face objectively and in order to reveal the power dynamics that are at play, keeping the world in crisis. I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. And a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who keep this project going. Robbie, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Very interested to know what we're going to discuss today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So could you give a whistle-stop tour of your academic career and what you're interested in? And then we'll launch into carbon offsetting, I think. Yeah, sure. Uh, whistle-stop tour. So I work at the University of Manchester. I'm a fellow Scot like you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I did my PhD here in development studies and I was looking at the political economy of carbon offsetting with, a, um, well, as part of a, a team that was looking at the value of uh, things like carbon and biodiversity, water, um, and indeed human life. So that was a really interesting mm -hmm. project to work on. And my sort of PhD was focused on carbon offsets. Um, and since then, I've been working in the politics department at Manchester. Uh, so yeah, I'm an early career researcher. Uh, I teach on things like the politics of climate change and critical cool. environmental politics, and as well stuff like um, globalization and, and development. Mm. So um, I get to spend time talking about these subjects with students and um yeah but this publication that i had out recently on the fantasy of carbon offsetting was a slight kind of diversion from what i did in my phd um okay. i was kind of changed theoretical framework um mm -hmm. so yeah my interests are quite broad especially because i teach on so many different areas yeah. Um, but my my research has been on these offset markets, which we can see a resurgence in at the moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Before we get into them, when you said that um, you were working as part of a team researching the value of biodiversity and carbon on these things, do you mean the financial value? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it can be defined in different ways, right? So, right, yeah. um, of course, like exchange value and, and, and monetary value and financial value is very prominent in today's mm -hmm. society. That's 
how people are trying to value things, but mm -hmm. partly that's done by setting up markets for things like carbon credits and emissions permits, biodiversity offsets and so forth. Um, and, um, also, you know, the value is set up by technocratic, technocratic mechanisms. So like in the health service, you have, um, a set of people who have to think about the value of human life. Yeah. And it comes back to monetary value and value for money and stuff like that to some extent. But of course this conflicts with lots of other understandings of value. So more yeah. normative, moral, uh, views of value, um, use value versus exchange value. So what do we actually generate use from? So yeah, we had a whole lot of debates about, you know, what is value and how should we relate mm. to the term value? And obviously it's got a long tradition in Marxist thought as well. Um, you know, his, uh, his theory of value, um, as well as like lots of other different academic perspectives mm -hmm, on that mm -hmm, question. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. we wrote a book at the end of it, um, with lots of different case studies about, um, valuing, uh, water and, and, and carbon and everything in, in different situations, like in South Africa, um, my PhD research, which was in, Ind in India and in Europe, um, as well as some other cases that other people were working on. This, my follow-up question might be veering into the fantasy of carbon offsetting, um, but in your research, how is it that we seem to have reached such a place of cognitive dissonance whereby communities and individuals do not inherently think of the financial value when they think of a value of a thing? If they were to imagine what a thing means to them or how much value a thing has to them, it is very unlikely unless it was an object um, a useful object that they purchased for a certain value that they will immediately go to monetary terms. Mm. And yet the market is demanding that we use monetary terms to think about the most precious and valuable things like such as biodiversity and such as water. Mm. How have we arrived at this very cognitively dissonant uh, moment in, yeah. yeah, in market history? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you're right that it is sort of weirdly anti-human uh, in, in a sense that, mm -hmm. you know, our, our instinct as humans would probably not be to think of things that are so precious in monetary terms. So it's some, sometimes it's really difficult to do that. And yeah. you, you get these kinds of cases where um, academics who are trying to figure out like how much people value stuff according to monetary frameworks, they go and interview people and say, well, how much would you pay for this? How much would you be willing to, um, yeah. get in order to sacrifice that? And people sometimes come back to them and say, well, no price, like it's yeah. priceless, like, I, I, and, and we'll refuse to put a price on it as a kind of point principle. Um, so there are things like that that go on, but yeah, the story of how we came to have prices on things like carbon is, is slightly different because it's more of an institutional story, which is often kind of taken humans out of, um, um, you know, a, a more normal, ordinary social context and put them into an institutional context, um, which is also really? social, but in a different way. Um, and the question was, well, how are we going to reduce carbon emissions? Um, and the idea was to cre create emissions trading systems. Um, because that had been trialed in the U S for, for sulfur dioxide trading and things like that. And it, it, 
linked into the kind of neoliberal view of um, how environmental regulation should be achieved, the, the emphasis on things being really cost effective for businesses. Um, that, you know, how can we reduce carbon emissions at the lowest possible cost? So, so yeah. that was the, the logic that, that drove emissions trading, um, and the creation of these allowances, which have a monetary value. And that is the way that offsetting took off as well, because you can bring offsets into this emissions trading system, um, to make it even cheaper, basically, uh, to comply with the regulations which are anyway inadequate um mm. but yeah that's that's the story basically it's um mm. it's an institutional story and um yeah there's a dissonance and that's partly what i explore in in my article is that there's it's there's very obviously a lot of problems especially with carbon offsetting mm -hmm. um but the people that i spoke to when i was doing my phd research were very enthusiastic about carbon offsetting and they presented it as a very green thing at the who same people? time, uh, people who work in the carbon offset market, so um, people who uh, create carbon offset projects and sell carbon credits mm -hmm. and do the monitoring and evaluation of the projects and all different types of people um, who are involved in the market, they kind of mm -hmm. believe in it and at the same time mm -hmm. they don't really believe in it. What so do you just, mean? Well, they... they defend the idea of carbon offsetting at the same time as recognizing that it's got lots of problems um but surely it's normal when working within a new field to understand that it will continue to evolve and to reform but yeah. the framework that you just use is that they believe and don't believe in it that seems yeah. quite dramatic yeah it's it's a strange one so that's what <laughs> i was trying to figure out like why is that happening um mm -hmm. and what does that mean so yeah, I ended up thinking, tried to think more about the nature of subjectivity and mm -hmm. um, what it means to be a person who has to operate in these systems. And we all operate in different types of systems. I have to mm -hmm. operate in a kind of neoliberal university, which um, has, you know, great, there's great parts of that and there's problems with that as well. Um, these people working in the carbon offset market they, yeah, they're basically sort of treading this line between, um, spending their working days, um, doing something because they think it is important for the future of the planet. But, um, ultimately I think it's a system that's not working very well and there are very well known critiques of it. So it's mm -hmm. how do they balance that sort of enthusiasm that they have for trying to save the world in a little way with carbon mm -hmm. offsetting, uh, versus the kind of appearance of, uh, these systems not working as mm -hmm. they say they are. Mm -hmm. This seems to me like such an important question for another reason, which would be that uh, we need to be able to recruit essentially anybody that is genuinely interested in the health of the planet and health of other people. Uh, we need to be able to speak to them fairly and empathetically and convincingly, even if they are on what activists would maybe think, or, you know, journalists like myself, like the wrong team right now. Mm -hmm. It's not that their heart's in the, the wrong place. Their heart's very much in the right place, but they have been kind of absorbed by 
a systemized or inter institutionalized approach to um, the climate crisis. And it's very easy to understand when you, we live in such a neoliberal world and at late, in late stage capitalism, of course, the first response to anything is going to be, well, how can we use capitalism to fix it though? <laughs> and most people don't have the time to think about whether or not that would be right in the first place. They're just trying mm. to do the right thing with the options available to them. Yep. So let's get into the, the subjectivity. Can you present your argument about the, the fantasy of it? Um, yeah, I suppose, um, it, it, to some extent it's, it's about working within the system that currently exists. Right. So, right. um, you know, capitalism is creating a huge amount of problems and it is, the, it is the kind of the real that um, drive so much of the change that we see in today's world that is still not properly reckoned with in society. It's still the kind of, um, the central economic material formation that is driving environmental change that people aren't yet that able to talk about like in the majority of cases, it's, it's just kind of accepted as the reality in which we live and, and, and something which, which can't really be changed. So first of all, we have to be able to talk about capitalism. So there's this phrase, um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that's very true. And it leads us to, um, to think very much in the order of, of what's possible at the moment, rather than what's possible. Um, yeah. in a, in a broader sense, which is going to be necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, in the, in the more narrow case of, of carbon offsetting, what I found was that the people involved kind of submit to forms of authority. So this is part of the, the, the facet of ideology. So capitalism has its ideology, right? It's a capitalist mm -hmm. ideology that helps to support it, mm -hmm. which helps to make it, um, you know, a social system that, that continues for a long time. And obviously it's not purely ideological. Like it also relies on state power. It relies on, um, discipline. Um, but it also has this ideological component and it's, it's not purely a discursive thing, but it also affects the way that we as humans, um, are in our subjectivity. Um, and the way we relate to people and relate to ideas and so forth. So could you extrapolate that discursive component just a little bit for, for listeners? Yeah. What so, um, so we have discourse, our language and, um, symbolic systems, um, which we use all the time. This is discourse right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and that includes everything from what we see in the media and social media and advertising and, and all sorts. Um, but we want to think of ideology, not just as the discourse, but of, as the way that it, it, it interpolates us, that the way it affects us, um, mm -hmm. and that the way that we are basically produced through ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the bit which. Um, I turn to sort of psychoanalytic ideology mm -hmm. critique for, mm -hmm. um, because it has its roots in Freud and other thinkers like uh, Jacques Lacan. 
and they have very complicated but really interesting theories about um uh you know the human and sub subjectivity and um consciousness and unconsciousness um and human drives and things like desire and enjoyment and all these things that make us human right um mm -hmm. and from but from this, you then have to think about, well, what does that have to do with capitalism and ideology and all that, which is more mm -hmm. social process and economic process and politics. Um, so you have some thinkers who are trying to connect these um, mm -hmm. two together. So you have um, Slavoj Žižek is probably mm -hmm. the most famous person who's done this. Um, he's not alone, but he's the most prominent person. And he says that um, that the real um which is which which troubles society and which troubles the individual is capital the real of our times is capital the real the real of our times yeah it, and okay. it creates these uh, symptoms these problems which we're aware of um as individuals and in society such as climate change such as environmental crisis such as huge inequality and, and social dislocation um but we, we are unable to, uh, to properly reckon with it, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. for ideological re reasons and, and, and that this has massive effects on our subjectivity. Mm -hmm, so that's mm -hmm. the kind of theoretical ideas that I'm trying to work with. And what we, what we find in the case of carbon offsetting, um, the case that I was looking at was things like submission to authority. Su mm -hmm. suppressing knowledge about what's n not going very well, mm -hmm. um, thinking that other people will do things for us, desiring things that we don't want, mm -hmm. um, not even realizing that we don't want them. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so, and, and some of what we see in the carbon offset case, we can see in, in the case of climate change more generally that, um, rather than thinking other people will do things for us, we need to step up ourselves to the extent possible. Um, rather than suppressing knowledge about problems, we need to engage with that reality. So engaging mm -hmm. with the reality of, of capital, engaging with the reality of its symptoms, like environmental mm -hmm. breakdown, rather than pretending mm -hmm. that's not happening. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than, um, being overly submissive towards authority to have a different attitude towards authority and try mm -hmm. to shift it. Mm -hmm. undermine it or delegitimize it mm -hmm. and, and and essentially that's politics you know, this is where politics has to happen um but also reckoning with our own desires um so that means you know, there's a little bit of a danger with the psychoanalytic approach that it can become quite individualistic you know you think about right. the, the individual who goes to the therapist and is in the clinic um and it's of very privileged thing as well um because mm. it, it tends to cost and it's not on the nhs that that type of therapy <laughs> but um yes yeah, it's, it's the aim really is to think about how the individual you or i or people watching it gets bound up with, with these collective structures um and then the importance of of a systemic collective change um, as well as change in our own lives in relation to the, the people and things that are more immediately surrounding us. So mm -hmm. it, yeah, at the end, I, I want to kind of get us to a point where we traverse fantasy. 
It's the idea sure. that we're kind of, we're locked into some sort of fantasy condition. Yeah. And we need to get beyond it. So the word that's coming to mind is, is paradigm. Um, and I think it's such an interesting discussion because there seems to be, again, another kind of cognitive dissonance, even for people that are really, really in this psychoanalytical kind of uh, field, that there is an element of understanding that um, because of the institutionalized and systemized uh, networks that we are born into and that we are a part of and that impact us, our subjectivity is not going to be some kind of purest replication of like one's individual nature. Like we are very much in a sense product of our environments. That's why it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Um, and yet still, uh, I think this is such an interesting conversation right now for even, you know, the fact that we're going through the Tory leadership campaign. As you, as we speak, the first political debate will be on the uh, television in a couple of hours. How do we exactly, as you say, traverse fantasy, but also understand that even people in positions of power are kind of affected by these same mechanisms? Like how has the Tory party swung or the Republican party swung so dramatically to the right so quickly? Um, it's not just because there's a couple of, you know, evil bastards pushing a few big red buttons for fun, which I'm really sure that there are, to be fair. <laughs> but it's also because they've managed to change the sort of ideology of what right wing is or what conservative parties should be, what Republican parties should be, what values they should stand for. It can happen so quickly. Um, and yet there seems to be this kind of um, impasse between, how do I put this? Um, understanding that we are all victims at, to some extent of this same problem and therefore to get the powerful on side we are going to have to engage with the paradigms that encase them as much as we just like to lop off their heads and kick them down the hill you know there's <laughs> <laughs> they're also still people just <laughs> um, and also um at the same token, I want to say this in really constructive language and language that isn't infantilizing because the whole thing with wokeness is waking people up, isn't it? Which is really self-aggrandizing. Um, how to encourage people to, and this is quite capitalist thinking, but like take a sense of responsibility for their subjectivity and be willing to, to dig into who they are and, and how they have been affected in order to then perhaps start combating these um, forces, which mm. are almost physical. They are so powerful. They seem almost physical. Mm. Um, you're the philosopher. Could you extrapolate something for everything oh, I've just said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there's a lot, there's a lot of rich uh, ideas in that. Um, I, my, my first instinct is not particularly a philosophical point but it's more of a political point that mm. that there need to be strong movements to push back against that um mm -hmm. and we can think about environmental movements climate movements um sort of social justice left-wing mm -hmm. movements mm -hmm. um but at the moment they're rather in abeyance um in the uk context anyway um, mm -hmm. that perhaps there was a high point somewhere around 2018, 19, 
Um, and we can think about politics of the Labour Party and how that's yeah. changed, um, but yeah. also the the movement for climate justice that we saw mm. with um, you know climate emergency declarations happening because mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion had attracted so many people onto the streets, mm -hmm. and Fridays for Future was on its upward curve in terms of you know how many people, young people, it was attracting. Um, but we're in a different situation now, um, in a few short years. So yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's a real, sh it's a real pity that those movements, which grew so rapidly, haven't been able to sustain, um, a really sort of, they have still got a core, but mm. they've not been able to sustain the, the scale of operation that they had initially. Well, so. hang on, I would like to push back on that because I think, for example, Extinction Rebellion is now in 80 countries around the world. What they have not sustained is the kind of explosive um, arrival of the message, but they are actually sustaining the, the, the amount of work, if not doing more work and more difficult work opening different chapters in different countries, you know, getting engaged more with local politics. You know, they mm -hmm. are actually in the very difficult process, it seems, of trying to create something new because their whole role at the beginning was like pointing at the fantasy and going, this, is, this isn't right. Look at it. Look at it. Take a really hard look at the world that we live in. What they are saying to you is not right. Like climate yeah. change is going to kill you. <laughs> um, and now they're in that very difficult stage of trying to keep one eye on fantasy, one eye on uh, how we're living and trying to envision a whole new world. Mm -hmm. oh God, how do you do that? You know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone said it was easy. And I, I think that, yeah, there is a kind of, there was something about that movement which did help to um, generate a, a, a social conversation about mm what it means to live in a cri climate crisis mm. um, and that was very helpful and mm -hmm. there are certainly things that XR had to learn as well about how it relates to the state and how it relates sure. to the police and so forth sure. um, and to some extent it's improved on that but the in terms of its growth I mean yeah you could point to sort of international um, extensions of it but in the UK context it's the numbers of adherents the number of rebels, for example, is just so much lower than what it was in the early days. Mm. And they're having to go through a massive amount of recruitment to try and go again. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, it's just really hard to sustain a movement um, yeah. and, um, and, and to sustain movement organizations within that. It, it does need to be done. Um, and I, I think that's the way that people can be brought in to... Um, better reckon with the subjectivity that they had and maybe the subjectivity that they want to move towards. Mm -hmm. Do you not think, though, this has just popped into my mind, but even the whole notion of subjectivity and postmodernism could have only come out of a capitalist economic framework. Like, there is something inherently capitalist about the focus on the individual, and it was freeing the individual from the constraints of the you know gender binary or the, or the or race and oppression and all these kinds of things but it is still such a capitalist perspective it mm. seems to me putting the onus on the individual rather than trying to grasp at kind of what more what young was doing like what 
brings us together, what is collective, um, what is yeah. shared between us. Um, and part of my concern sometimes when we talk about capitalism generally is that people will think that the the problem began here. And I mean, if you sort of take a long, like capitalism was quite a natural evolution out of a feudal state and it did give people more freedoms, quite frankly. Um, it did give people more opportunities. It did give them more potentialities to self-realize. Um, and certainly there is not a time before capitalism it's certain in a you know an industrial world that was like loads better you know it's all just been a nightmare <laughs> because of the of the of power dynamics mm. um and my concern sometimes is that we try and pin everything on capitalism as if it's this economic framework that came out of nowhere and sort of took us by storm and 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 monopolized and manipulated our lives. And it's like, well, it, it came from us, something in our history, something in our social evolution. Mm. Um, and we have a long and bloody and disastrous uh, history of inequality and unfairness mm. as well. Um, so given this kind of increasingly like siloed pers perspective in psychoanalysis and in economics and in just about bloody everything, um, how do you see us traversing that fantasy? Is there going to be an, an, a necessary understanding of the collective? And how do we look to theory to build that understanding? Mm. Um, yeah, great question. Um, you know, the individualizing aspects of, of capitalism. Yeah, I, to I totally get that. And, um, you know, there's this idea of homo economicus, yeah. rational <laughs> economic man. Um, yeah, that, that <laughs> supposedly just responds to incentives <laughs> and is, is complete myth, right? But it, yeah. it is the thing that holds together economic thought, which is, uh, you know, an ideological construct in itself, um, yeah. sort of neoclassical economics and markets and everything like that. Um, but there's also this, uh, the social aspect to capitalism as well, which is often disavowed, like it's disavowed by the economics tradition, unless you talk about certain branches of economics, we take it, take it more seriously, um, social reproduction. So the fact that capitalism can't survive, um, without the social reproduction of the species of the human species, because it has to extract, has to extract labor power, right? So where does it yeah. get the labor power? through reproduction yeah. um and it, it does this through the family primarily but it could do it in other ways um so it, it relies on care work right mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. often pays this care work very low um mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know so can i uh, sorry so this is all I, gendered i need to go I need on to interrupt. interrupt yeah, yeah go, yeah, for go it, on please. i need to interrupt i need to interrupt because like it's it, it capitalism it we're using re, we're using the, the term it and it's like I think we need to be more precise. Capitalism is not a thing in and of itself. Like we do understand that capitalism has like self-producing capabilities in a sense, but it is a system that is engendered by people. And sometimes I fear the more that we talk about these economic like paradigms or social paradigms or anything else, which are which do exist and do in influence and impact everybody, but we are also taking one eye off of the powerful who are the ones who benefit from these kinds of systems and who are the ones investing huge amounts of money and influence in maintaining 
these mm. inequalities and in maintaining these paradigms. Yeah. So when we talk about capitalism, what are we talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a process. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a process which is run by humans. It's run by capitalists. It's, mm -hmm. it's fed by workers. Um, and it devours ecosystems and produces lots of waste um, and inequalities. And so, so I'm, I'm saying it a lot, right? But mm. yeah, um, it's there. And of course, yeah, there are powerful people who benefit it from it um, very much. And there are a lot of people who don't benefit from it much at all. In fact, they've mm. lost out because they've been exploited. Yeah. They've been poorly paid. Uh, they've been dispossessed. Yeah. Um, and that's not just capitalism, like you were saying, um, it's also, you know, a long history of power relations, uh, mm -hmm. in feudal periods, um, through imperialism. Um, so yeah, it's like humans are, are, are a pretty crazy species, you know, that we can be so caring and so loving and so violent and so horrible <laughs> at the same time, um, sort of have to reckon with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right okay so but yeah i think you're asking about how to trans traverse a fancy and i wish i had a better answer to that <laughs> but um i don't right now <laughs> maybe you've got another question which i can answer better <laughs> <laughs> well to be honest i would be interested to know what direction um philosophical and psychoanalytical theory is actually taking in response to the climate crisis um, I remember pitching something a very long time ago, uh, a thesis to a very famous, uh, professor of philosophy and the sort of baseline of my theory was the self other paradigm. And the response I got was, we don't use that anymore. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I didn't realize philosophy updated itself so quickly at the time, uh, cause I'm pretty sure she had used that exact framing in her class the year before. Um, so I would be very interested to know, like, how is this, the, the field responding to the crisis that we're in and what direction is it taking for its research? Um, yeah, that's a, also a good question. So Thanks. I'm full of them. I'd, yeah, well, I guess you're in the right <laughs> chair there, aren't you? <laughs> um, so I'm, am I a philosopher? That's some, sometimes I wonder, um, <laughs> I don't work in a philosophy department, but I mm. think about theory and I think about academic ideas. So in, in some senses I'm doing philosophy and then I'm reading philosophers, listening to them. Uh, there are so many currents. I mean, academia is so rich at the moment. Um, so, you know, so many disciplines, so many cross-disciplinary initiatives, so many different projects. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a huge amount really. I, I'm not even sure quite what to point to right mm. now, mm. um, because there's a wealth. There's the environmental politics scholarship, there's the climate policy scholarship, there's the energy research policy. So this is more kind of social science stuff in the, in the philosophy fields. I mean, you name it, people are thinking about all sorts, right? Um, but what, what is there that really helps us to resolve the predicament? Um, yeah. 
I think that this stuff know. about ideology and subjectivity has got something to say, mm -hmm. um, which is important. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that this field grows to some extent. I have my concerns about it as well. Um, what are your concerns? It, that it becomes very jargonistic and mm -hmm. um, speaking inwardly to itself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it was very difficult to write this paper in a way that I thought people would be able to understand because mm -hmm. of the amount of jargon that's involved that I mm -hmm. had to try and make sense of myself and then be able to try and make sense of it to other people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there, we need to go beyond this kind of really uh, abstract way of talking, which is very common in philosophy. I think it's really yeah. important that you use long words where necessary and so forth. But I mean, I'm, I'm saying we should think about Jacques Lacan's ideas and he spoke in a, it, and, and wrote in a way which was like com almost deliberately unintelligible. So there's a bit yeah, of a yeah, contradiction yeah, yeah, yeah. there. I'm trying to yeah. say like we need to reach out and... Um, <laughs> And, and, and meet the public where they are at the same time, I'm starting to look to these really complicated ideas. So yeah, that's a tension that we've got to live with. Uh, yeah, I think people just need to do a little bit better, frankly. It's like a kind of hangover from uh, German, except we're not German. Because uh, obviously they have the language where you just add, add things endlessly to the end of a word and it all kind of makes sense to them. Um, and it seems like Anglophone philosophers just kind of thought that they could do the same thing, really. Just like mm. make really, really, really long words not make sense. It's like, now nah, do better. We have a flexible language with, you know, a huge amount of space and nuance. Do better. To me, it seems so much like in a bid to maintain the ivory tower and to maintain relevance. Right. right. Um, if you're writing ideas that are unintelligible to the general public, you must really deserve your PhD. It's like, no, you don't. I want to take it away from you. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that we all have to write in super simple sentences and never use passive voice and, and, and be really strict about it because that's constraining and we need to have, you know, different ways of articulating ourselves. But, um, but there's there's something going on there about people wanting to use long, complicated words because it makes them seem more clever than they actually are. Definitely, definitely. But even academia could do so much by opening up the field of um, different media forms that are available. Like, why is everybody forced to write? Not everybody can write well, no matter how much time they spend reading books. You know, some people would do better rating some people would do better i don't know drawing there are so many ways to communicate fantastic ideas and it seems such a shame to me that it's bound in this like very um this singular uh form of communication um yeah so i think some people are trying to break out from that you know i think of uh, somebody i was doing a phd with who's got involved with producing comics generally. oh wicked yeah, um, which is all about like resilience to climate change and adaptation, disasters, cool. and it's yeah, it's like human level stories about you know, what happened um, after a hurricane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How people yeah. supported each other and so forth, yeah. and it's illustrated and it's it's, it's really nice. Or like there's a, a neat project called the International Political Economy of Everyday Life which mm -hmm. has its website and um, 
it's got loads of illustrations and it's got text, but it's also got like uh, kind of rich diagrams and text boxes. It's more of like mm. a textbook type thing. And it's organized by different things that we have in our life, like sugar or cars. Yeah. Oh, fab. Yeah. So there are, there are creative things that exist in academia uh, as well. Um, and that's, that's great to see. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess, you know, the other things with teaching, we try to put things in, in terms that resonate for the students when we're teaching, mm. but we're, but part of the issue is that when academics public, then <laughs> they're trying to produce these, um, international, internationally excellent, like world leading yeah. pieces and they have to be seen as like leading edge of academic rigor. And that means, um, doing some things that, that, that might not actually help that much for, for public understanding or, or, or social improvement, because the em emphasis is on getting into the top journals, which might be behind the table. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the norms that they set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to talk about capitalism? Let's talk about, you know, yeah, academia or academic publishing in particular is an absolute nightmare. And it seems like the, um, the industry of academia is so deeply entrenched in its own fantasy of what it is and what it thinks it provides to the public that it can continue to hide the most valuable information in the world behind paywalls during a poly crisis and think that it is doing the right thing. It's like, everybody's lost their minds. Everybody's lost, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but one other thing, because we could bitch about academia all day and it's that's really not what you're here for. We're here to talk about your research. One of the things that I do want to touch on again is like coming back to the ideology thing because a lot of what my guests say on the show is that they, we have a problem of values and we need to create a new value system for the world. Now, when you kind of get into the trenches of what that could mean, people often talk about um, how you can create a new ideology. And that's how you can kind of sell values and you can do it really, really quickly. And there's a sense of, you know, riffing on what religion has been really good at throughout human history, uh, changing cultures rapidly. Now. There are obviously huge, dangerous implications to use to weaponizing ideology, um, and rather than getting into the weeds of whether or not this is the right time to do it, because we are running out of time, what are some of the ways that we can keep an eye on fantasy and keep an eye on what is ideological and what we are maintaining as ideological for a purpose, and then how we are using that to impact reality? Like, is it actually possible for human beings to? maintain their own subjectivity or experience their own subjectivity whilst keeping one eye on sort of the collective objectivity um, and navigate that liminal space. Yeah, I think it is possible. You know, it's, there, there is contestation. It's not like, um, it's not like all resistance is gone from the system. Like there is clearly lots of resistance in lots of different places and we shouldn't forget it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it comes back to, to, to politicization, but mm -hmm. I, I find that interesting that there's a kind of emphasis on values and values change. Cause 
Well, I, I sort of agree that that is necessary. Um, but to me, it reads a little bit depoliticized, the mm -hmm. sort of thing that we might change through education. And this mm -hmm. is what people who don't want to talk about politics too much mm -hmm. always come back to, because we can all agree that education's but actually we need to think about the, the forms of disagreement that exist and how to make use of them. Um, and yeah, I, could you keep I, going on that? What do you, what do you mean? What, what, what you see in a lot of policymaking circles uh, at different levels uh, is this view that people are working together um, collaboratively to uh, resolve problems. Um, so here in Manchester, we have the targets for dealing with climate change and the the council and the combined authority, the mayor's and office and business and universities are all going to come together and they're all going to kind of um, agree a package and, and work in partnership. It's, it's the idea, right? Um, but that just suggests that there's no politics. There is no power relations between these institutions and mm, interests and preferences. Mm -hmm. And actually we need to remember the, the different interests that we have and um and make them known like you were talking earlier about the you know, the rich people capitalists billionaires uh the owners of media establishments um the owners of polluting industries the shareholders of those industries um people who've engaged in corrupt practices of various kinds you know, their interests are different to most people. And if we think that we're working together, then that's a kind of ideological move that sets us back. Totally. So there, there is something to be said about kind of re, re-politicization. And that is necessary, I think, for, for effective movements to exist. They, they need to kind of see the differences of interest, clash of interests, and the power relations which are trying to keep them in place so that the already powerful people can continue to do what suits Yes, I completely agree. Um, a lot, I've been doing a lot of writing around this recently, around um, intention and agenda and not letting the powerful set the agenda by using, by kind of creating a false equivalence debate that hides their, their very intention. Um, Roe v. Wade, great example. Um, but how would you respond to people saying that's all very well? Perhaps we do need to repoliticize debate, but how do we also get the powerful on side? Because we live in such a time of such absurd power relations that it does seem unless um, unless we go full French. Uh, which, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, we need to be able to convince those that have power to either 
and this sounds naive, but to either give it up or to redistribute some of it or, you know, whatever. Like, how how do we do that in a way that isn't pretending that going to the polls every five years and casting a vote is some way of exercising that kind of democratic yeah. opinion? Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a lack of time, right? So so this is where it, it's, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, yeah, like part of the idea that you're still seeing in the, the discourse of people like Extinction Rebellion is that if you just get enough people on the streets um, and everyone sits down, decides not to move and the police will be overwhelmed, the courts will be overwhelmed and then we'll have like this revolution. Um, but that, that that's a kind of a weird idea because, you know, then what? You know? Um, so there needs to be more than just mass mobilization and one day where everyone sits down in the street there has to be effective movements that are able to engage with political structures at various levels call them out on their uh greenwash yeah relies yeah and say actually we want you to do this yeah that and the other thing, why isn't it happening? And you promised this and it's not being delivered. Um, and that needs to happen at local levels and um, at national levels. And there should be international solidarity. But there, we are so far from that. And um, but, I mean, that's what's frustrating is that we, that's what we need. And we kind of know that. Um, we need those really effective movements, but they're not there. It, but also why? I mean, I've got two things coming to mind. The first would be um, the only pe person I've seen on like television on news channels recently that completely destroyed the the fantasy is Mick Lynch, the RMT union boss, just like refusing to let these Tory MPs set the agenda or control the control the narrative. Yeah. Um. So that's fantastic. And I'm very excited to see actually how powerful um, his strategy is, because I think it might be actually one of the only ways that we can engage in such a sort of privileged nation as the United Kingdom, because in other nations, you know, where the government is more fragile, perhaps more authoritarian, but also more fragile, people are just striking. I mean, look what happened in Sri Lanka. They just overran that fucker's house, you know, just like, no, we've had enough. Um, and it's there's this t interesting tension between the freedom and having little to lose in that situation and then the chains of having so much to lose in a nation like the United Kingdom. We seem to be going off of a cliff and the most some of the most empowered people in the world to actually do something about it. And yet, and yet, you know, like... Oh, this is a very different tangent, but what, what what is it going to take? Yeah, well, Mick Lynch, he's he's a a guy who's come up through the ranks of the union. You know that he you know, he doesn't just purely exist as an individual. Uh. Mick Lynch, you know, he he's part of the union structure, and mm. and that has to be to be built and maintained and defended. Um, and it's very difficult to do that. Talk about anti-union legislation in, in the UK, for example, you know, and the state is, and the Conservative Party as well, aware of potential for uh, 
resistance that comes from the unions and mm -hmm. they, they have legislated to make them less powerful. But but they're still there, right? And and, mm -hmm. and Mick Lynch did, did brilliantly um, in his media appearances to make mm -hmm. most of the opportunity as it presented it mm -hmm. itself to him um, on behalf of the members. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great. I mean, I, I haven't followed this Franklin case um, so so closely, but clearly there's a there's a massive breakdown in all sorts of ways in, in what's happening in Sri Lanka. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, obviously, if, if people get together and they're angry enough about the fact that they are struggling to survive, and and that is not just happening in Sri Lanka; it's ha it's happening in lots yeah. of different places, including in the UK. There's homelessness and like yeah. Um, uh, access to healthcare is is starting to become a problem. Yeah. Um, people are going to get angry. Uh, uh, but I think it's a matter of time, really, that until we get more effective movements to channel that anger. Um, but those who seek to build the movements will also need to be cognizant of the kind of resistance that they'll face in, mm -hmm. in building this. It could be, it could be. Repression from the police, increase of police powers, already seen that, partly in response to environmental movements, yeah, um, like Extinction Rebellion and others, um, or a whole host of ways like anti-trade union legislation. So Propaganda. Um, and propaganda, yeah, uh, precisely. So yeah. it's a contested field. and But see it, see it and recognize it and try and deal with it rather than pretending that everyone's working together and that we all hate carbon emissions and we're all trying to reduce because actually that's not really what's happening. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting note, I think, to end on. Keep your eye on your enemy. That is how I'm going <laughs> to paraphrase that. <laughs> Robbie, thank you so much for your time. It was great speaking with you. My final question would be, who would you like to platform? Difficult one because there's so many good people that I've come across recently, uh, but I'll go with the academic theme. Mm -hmm. um, like to platform my former colleague, Jaffe Wilson, uh, who is, uh, well, he was an academic in politics department. I worked with him teaching and he got me into all this stuff about ideology critique. He's done some brilliant research. Uh, in lots of different places, including Latin America. Yeah, it's got yeah, tales to tell. Uh, I'd also like to platform mm -hmm. Shan Sullivan. Sharon uh, Sullivan. Shan, uh, S-I-A-N, Shan Sullivan. Uh, she's a professor of conservation and society, the way that we value nature and um, the problems of biodiversity offsetting things like that wicked thank you so much and thank you for joining me on planet critical thank you very much for having me on been a pleasure if you want to learn more about robbie's work i've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support the podcast if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com as always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.